Hot Girls with me, Lex, on the decks. That went a little high there. (laughs) This is the show where we explore the mechanics of the music industry through intimate conversations on creativity and biography episodes exploring the lives of iconic artists. I often wonder who will be the artists of today, which we'll look back on and toast to as being truly great. I think to have that status of being an icon, like the Beatles, Bob Dylan, or Aretha Franklin, your music needs to have an enduring sound. And that isn't necessarily tied to popularity of the day. The strange thing for me about someone like Amy Winehouse was that I remember seeing her on T4 running around doing some hilarious mad press thing with Simon Amstel way before Back to Black. And then I watched as she grew up and delivered these songs that were just so distinctive, so moving, so timeless and so cross-generational. While there are lots of recent and fascinating documentaries about Amy out there, What I really wanted to focus this episode on was how she created and established herself in the first place. She made really great music, but there's a lot that goes into that beyond just having a great voice and a natural ear. So that's what I'm going to dig into. This is an episode in Timelessness by Amy Winehouse. Ladies, gentlemen, listen up. You're listening to Hot Girls. Lex of the Decks. We in the mix. It's fire. Keep it going. We on fire. From London for the world. Let's go in. Um, I, I'm from Southgate. I was born in North London. And um, yeah, I'm a dad's singer. You know, that's what I come from, even though I'm, I'm really young. <laughs> Growing up, Amy had humble roots. Her dad, Mitch, was a cab driver and her mum was a pharmacist. Her childhood was happy, free and creative. Despite seeming as raw and authentic as can be, Amy was actually a stage school kid. She went to the Sylvia Young Theatre School and then later to the Brit School. Her best friend was a girl called Juliet and they both loved rap. So they called themselves Sweet and Sour and they began performing as an homage to Salt and Pepper. I was a rapper when I was a little kid rapper and me and my friend had a little, um, little act called Sweet and Sour because we loved Salt and Pepper so much. We wanted to be Salt and Pepper so much, we called ourselves Sweet and Sour. Her next musical foray came with the guitar, and after messing around with her brothers, she brought her own when she was 14 and began playing and writing music. Alongside stage school, she began singing with the National Youth Jazz Orchestra. Her talent was visible, but her interest and passion was even more prominent. To take things to the next level, Amy's friend helped her create a demo tape, which they sent to various A&Rs. And if you don't know what A&Rs are, it stands for Artist and Repertoire. And you can check out the Hot Girls interview with Kamali, who is an A&R at Parlophone Records. The tape that Amy and her friend created ended up being heard by Simon Fuller's 19 Management in 2002. Simon Fuller, famous for his work with the Spice Girls. And they signed her, paying her £250 a week against future earnings. So that was essentially enough for Amy to not have to work to cover her living expenses and have the freedom to focus on music full time. She was about 17 at this point and had left full-time education. Shortly after this, she was connected to the electronic music group Massive Attack. She loved the experience of working with them, but she hated the music they were making. She felt it wasn't for her, and so she didn't want it to go out and be released with her name attached. My key takeaway for this is how subjective music is. Massive Attack are legends, but their music didn't feel right for Amy. That's why you have to not listen too much to other people's opinions, because it's personal. 
The fact that Massive Attack wanted to work with her in the first place meant her name started to resonate and mean something to people. It was a key stamp of approval for her to get at an early stage in her career. The next step for her on the musical ladder was a meeting with the president of Sony Records, someone called Guy. He also believed in her talent, and so he started connecting Amy with established producers. One of these was Salam Remy. Salam Remy, if you aren't familiar, had worked with Nas and the Fugees, as well as being the producer behind Blue Contrail's Breathe and Miss Dynamite's Miss Dynamite, to name some highlights of a remarkable career. Salam loved Amy, and they had a brilliant meeting of minds. He said to her, you're good, but just how good can you be? Well, I couldn't tell if she was mimicking a style or if she actually had vocal and, you know, vocal ability. Like, not everybody, a lot of people can mime. I can mime a style, but I'm not really a vocalist in that way. So I couldn't tell if she was styling and just doing a little something because I'm in, like, a little Billie Holiday vibe or if she actually had the ability to emote a song and really do it. So from our previous recordings, I couldn't tell if that was there. Um... But when I heard her sing in front of me, I could tell not only could she sing in that type of tone, but she could belt in that tone. And also at the same time, she was able to, just like how she was picking her notes, like she was really like a jazz in singer. She had the ability, you know, she had the stylings of a 65-year-old jazz singer who knew the ropes up and down and you didn't, you were going to get a different performance every time. I could hear that in her first singing for me in front of me and I was like, okay. It was those two together who created the bulk of Amy's first album, Frank. These early days of creating this album was so fun for her. And it's so nice seeing footage of that time because it was the time where she was most free. Salam decided in that period of time that she was special. And that was a vote of confidence she needed. The other producer she worked with had also worked with Lauren Hill. And he brought in Bob Marley's old musicians to get the right sounds out to create what he believed could be brilliant. They would all get high and create music like an old jazz improv group. And that was how the first album, Frank, got made. And when you know all those ingredients went in, those remarkable musicians, it's not that surprising what came out. The album was released on Island Records, the boss of who had been stalking Amy for a while trying to sign her. To get her signed to the label, he had actually brought her in to perform acoustically to the whole company. Her dad said that when she signed that record deal, she didn't have any expectations of exploding. She just wanted to get her music out, and she saw this record deal as a way to get that done. But the people around her clearly had different perspectives. They saw what they had in front of her. I think everyone close to Amy saw her as a star. Her first Brit nomination came in 2004, but she lost out to Dido. Amy described Frank, the album as a straight jazz hip-hop cross-album. Other people use the word blues against it, but Amy noted it was really without blues and folk sounds, which is what set it apart from a lot of jazz, which was bubbling in London at that time. She wrote the album largely about love because that was what she was experiencing at that time, and so that is definitely a pattern in her career. She writes from her truth. Given that this is an episode in timelessness, I do want to call out that Amy went against the zeitgeist of what might be expected of a popular artist to create jazz music. That probably was a huge contribution to her success. Despite having made most of the records in America and with American producers, the album Frank wasn't actually released in the States. 
However, word did get out there and her early fan base started to build up in this almost tribal way as people tried to get hold of the album. It was eventually re-released and released in the States in 2008, much later on in Amy's career. She had an incredible TV run as well, performing on Jules Holland, Jonathan Ross and others. A rare level of exposure for a debut album, which showed how many people it resonated with. Here's a clip of her being straight up hilarious from her appearance on the Jonathan Ross show at that time. I only found this out. You're managed by the company you look after S Club 7, you look after the, the Spice Girls, Simon Fuller. Uh, have they tried to, to mould you in any way, though, if people ask you to do things to change the way you look or speak or behave? Um, yeah, one of them tried to mould me into a big triangle shape and I went, no, nah, you know, I've got my own style. <laughs> style and I wrote my own songs and you know if someone has so much of something already there's very little you can add there is so much that contributed to Amy's success but while at the heart of it was the music I think her personality also played a really key role as you heard there she was funny she had a lot of back chat and she took her talent more seriously than she took the industry and it makes her so much more appealing Part of the brilliance of her music was, of course, the wit in the lyrics. One of her friends noted that it was in the wake of this release when Amy's emotional troubles began. He said, as one example, they applauded her for being curvy. And that's when weight became an issue for her. She didn't see herself as curvy or non-curvy. It just wasn't a part of her identity. But then here comes the industry to say that your weight must be a part of your identity. For her second album, and the one which established her really as one of the greatest artists of all time, Amy went back into the studio with Salam Remy and had one other collaborator, Mark Ronson. Mark Ronson had been a DJ and producer for many years, but was still very young. His breakthrough project was the album, which, which featured tracks like Ooh Wee with Ghostface Killer. Mark Ronson's sound is quite timeless in its nature. He's gone on to work closely with Bruno Mars and Lady Gaga and was obviously the producer behind Uptown Funk. Back to Black was released in 2006, two years after Frank, and it went straight to number one. In the UK, it became the best-selling album of 2007, with Time magazine naming Rehab the lead single from the album, the best song of 2007. During that summer of 2007, Amy went on a big festival tour to promote the album, including Glastonbury and Chicago's Lollapalooza. Valerie was also released in the same year, under Mark Ronson's name featuring Amy Winehouse a reimagining of the Zootons hit and one which would be a poster stamp of Amy's career and one of my least favourite songs of all time. <laughs> Lol. However, by the end of summer 2007, Amy's gig started to take a downturn. This began with her stumbling around, crying and ultimately being booed off stage in Birmingham. Even though she made it through, there is quite a lot of... Um, really quite cruel clickbaity footage online of her clearly like off her face on stage. And it feels like this period of October, November 2007 to March 2008 was a dark and heavy drug taking period for her and really like the, the deep downward spiral. In February 2008, she won the Grammy for Best New Artist. The saddest thing I remember from one of the documentaries, one of the many documentaries which have come out on Amy Winehouse, was seeing a clip of her talking about this night that she won the Grammys and saying that the clip was from a period of time when she was sober reflecting on that evening and she said that she felt absolutely nothing when her name was announced. The only way she could feel anything by that point in time was by being high 
So she won, she had all this applause, everyone was around her, and all she was thinking about was, oh, I can't wait till this is all over and I can go and smoke. I think this is ultimately like the saddest and worst thing about drugs like crack and heroin. People take them to feel something, and then ultimately they result in your inability to feel all of the beautiful natural human emotions that, that you can feel. After this, the world became fascinated with Amy's downfall. There would be rumours and moments of her appearance, but then she would withdraw again. The documentaries that have followed have suggested that her recovery from drugs was a long and challenging process, but that there were many signs of hope. Unfortunately, those around her were essentially too impatient. They wouldn't give her the full time she needed to recover, so she would just start to find peace and calm and then be pulled back to London, back on stage, and the drugs would be too tempting again. When she ultimately died in 2011, it was because she had stopped taking and her body was too weak to cope with the withdrawal. So what are my conclusions and lessons from Amy? Well, firstly, the value of finding the right creative partners to establish your sound. And Amy was very specific about who these would be. Salam Remy, Mark Ronson. They were Amy's. And if you heard the episode I did on Missy Elliott or the episode I did on Sade, to name a couple, you'll see this pattern come up a lot of finding that right producer or band or writer partner that allows you to establish something iconic and distinctive. Secondly, to make timeless music, you have to trust your own ear primarily. And again, touching back on that point, she worked with Massive Attack, but she knew that sound wasn't right for her. Mark Ronson, I'm going to play a clip at the end, and he talks about how Amy would say, no, this isn't good enough, and they start again. She trusted her own ear. She wasn't trying to make a hit. She was just trying to make something good. And finally, you can achieve your dreams and experience no joy from it if you don't protect your health and your emotions. Thanks for listening, guys. Have a great Week. Guy Moot, who was the head of EMI Publishing, said, do you know Amy Winehouse? She's in New York for like a day. Do you want to meet with her? And I was like, yeah, I remember like that thing she put out. And we're sitting in my studio and I'm like, so what kind of record do you want to make? She's like, I've been listening to all this girl group stuff like the Shangri-Las. And I just, I love this music. By the third or fourth day, the first time I did something that she didn't like, I was working on this instrumental track and she came, I was like, do you like this? And it was like a little too like clap, busy, like funky. And she was like, no. And I started kind of scrambling, like taking different things out of the track. Like, what about, what about, like, is it that thing you don't like if I take that shaker out? She's like, Mark, it's shit. Like, why are you trying to fix it? While that bluntness kind of stung quite a bit for like probably an hour, like it was it was a good lesson just like how to just make better shit and just be more honest what up let's